Continue our study in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. And we're looking at Jesus calls His first disciples. Jesus calls His first disciples. This will be part three. God willing, I can easily see that we're going to make um, two more parts out of this. I like to break it up a little bit. There's much here. But our scripture text this morning is in John chapter 1. As we're going through John chapter 1, we're very close. Like I said, in a couple of Lord's Days, we'll be embarking on chapter 2. And as you know, chapter 2 is we come to the wonderful wedding feast in Canaan of Galilee. And we see our Lord's first miracle, and there's a great reason why He chose this particular miracle. And it has great depth to it, so we're heading in that direction. But as of right now, we're in chapter 1, verse today, I'd like to read to you verse 43 through 51. Verse 43 through 51. He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the word of the living God says. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's stop right there and let's pray. Our Father and our great God, our prayer this morning, as the author of Psalm 119 prays, Deal bountifully with your servant, O Lord, that I may live and keep your word. Lord, open our eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Lord, this vessel is weak. I just pray just use my voice to echo the voice which is greater than all voices, and that's your voice. Mighty is your voice. Great is your voice. 
For it is your word, Lord, wherein lies the great power to revive us, to regenerate us, to make us new. It is living and it's powerful. It endures forever. And we thank you for it this morning. And Lord, we pray within this hour that Jesus Christ would have the preeminence. And not only within this hour, Lord, but all of our lives, in our entire life. For Lord, this is what Redeeming Grace Church, this is what every church should be about, is the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you for this, and Father, we ask this in His name, and for your honor and glory. Amen and amen. Here within these verses, we see Jesus really calling the first disciples. We saw in verse 35 to 42, um, as John the Baptist pointed toward the Lamb of God, and when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, in verse 36, the two disciples heard him speak, and those two disciples was none other than John the Apostle, who's not named, but he's speaking of himself, and Andrew. And they followed Jesus. So we know that already we have John the Apostle and Andrew, the very first disciples of Christ, to follow Christ. It was a transition. They were actually the disciples of John the Baptist but they follow Jesus Christ. Rightly so. Now here we have the call of Philip. The call of Philip. I like to just, this Lord's Day, just look at Philip's calling and then we'll pick it up, God willing, next week to Nathaniel. There's a lot here. But the call of Philip happens very quickly in verse 43 and 44. And then the rest of the chapter is devoted much uh, to the focus of the call of Nathaniel, which is initiated by Philip in verse 45. And again, like I said, I would like to do is divide this into two segments, two more parts. I love this about expository preaching because we can get much out of it and divide it up more so so we can get the most out of it. So in this series of discipleship, of the first disciples, we will have a total of five parts. Verse 43 to verse 51 is a section here, actually, that introduces the fourth day. The fourth day. The fourth day since the beginning of John the Baptist's witness which is found in verses 19, 29, and verse 35. We saw last Lord's Day how in the calls of Andrew and Peter, both being brothers, and the other disciple who is John the Apostle, the theme is actually of the testimony that emerged. And that theme continues here in this paragraph. But another theme is added to it. As we look at this paragraph more closely today, with God's help, the theme 
And that's why I like to focus the theme in which we see emerge here is that God brings more than we imagine from less we expected. Or turn the other way around in order to see it in our text that we see God uses less than we expected to bring about more than could ever imagine. In other words, like the old wonderful hymn says, little is much when God's in it. There's a lot here, even though it's very simple, it's very personal, it's very warm, but we can learn much about evangelism and discipleship within these texts, within, within these verses. So, so as we look at our text today and, and see by God's help, and only as we just sung, the Holy Spirit will open up our eyes and and cut our ears on to listen very carefully what the Lord is speaking to us. At least we will see two ways that pattern this pattern develops in our passage, and we will ask how that pattern relates to us personally within the context of this scripture. I love what Stephen Lawson said. I want to just say this as a footnote in expository preaching in which he is a firm believer in, and I amen that all the way. Once you hear expository preaching, you won't go back to topical preaching. It's so much an expository exposition of God's Word. But he says, content and the meaning of what the text is saying, not what we think is saying, but what God is saying, is first and foremost. But, with even with all that, if there's no application of how we can apply that to our practical living then everything else is in vain. So we must have the whole. And that's what I like to do by God's help is take us into this and look at the meaning of what the text is saying as much. I won't be able to exhaust it. So, Lord willing, we'll pick up some more details next Lord's Day as we look into this study. There's much here, so as a whole. But I'd like to focus on those, oh, those emphasis. So within these, uh, within these verses today, verse 43 to 45, our focus will really, our focus is always Jesus, right? He is our main focus. He's what the text is all about. But we'll be, we'll be looking at Philip's discovery and witness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, by which, by, by the way, was unmistakable. It was absolutely unmistakable. So Jesus was the one that's prophesied in the Scriptures, and he was the one that's promised as the promised Messiah to come. So here's my little outline I basically just wrote together. Uh, first, we will observe Philip's experience. Philip's experience in following Christ in verse 43 and 44. And second, we will observe Philip's first concern to his friend Nathaniel. In verse 45. And then third, we will observe Philip's conviction that Jesus was and is the one prophesied as the coming Messiah. So that's just a simple outline that I scratched together here. So the text reads in verse 43 and 44. Notice with me. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. 
Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And that's pretty much what the text tells us in verse 43 and 44. The following day, the following day, or as some translation says, the next day. That next day is now the fourth day. The fourth day, in the week of Jesus' early ministry, he selected, he selected, uh, here, here is selected by the evangelist, the apostle John. Jesus wanted, or Jesus decided, and I have read some commentators that the name Jesus is not in the original Greek, in the original here, so is some say that it's um, Andrew that wanted to go, but it doesn't really make sense. I believe it is Jesus' desire to go. It's one possible way to say it, that Jesus decided Jesus wanted to go um, here to, <clears throat> to Galilee. It's apparent that Philip was also in the wilderness with John the Baptist. And before returning to Galilee, Jesus then sought him out and invited him to join the other disciples. Now, I don't you love that? Jesus seeks him out. Now, according to the text, we have seen that Peter, Andrew, and John, and likely James, even though James is not mentioned, and more than likely, he is, he is part of the crowd as well. As, as, as had more or less found Jesus. Now, to be precise, let me say this off the, uh, at the offset in the introduction of this message. They had been directed to him by John the Baptist, as we've seen. So this is the first time we actually read that Jesus himself actually sought and found one of them. No mistake about it. I like what John MacArthur comments in the wonderful book that's based upon the 12 here. 12 Ordinary Men. If you don't have that book, it's a great book. He really gives it wonderful, wonderful details of each of these men that followed the Lord or Jesus chose. This is what MacArthur observed about this, and I like to insert this here because it's so important. He says, quote, that is, not to say he didn't sovereignly seek and call the rest. In fact, we know that he had chosen them all before the foundation of the world. In John fifteen sixteen, Jesus told them, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. But in the description of how they first encountered Christ, this language is unique to the call of Philip. He is the first one whom Jesus physically sought out and the first one to whom Jesus actually said, follow me. MacArthur goes on to explain this. It is interesting, incidentally, to note that at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus had to say, follow me, to Peter. In John 21, 
verse 19 and verse 22. So Peter apparently still needed encouragement after his failure on the night of Jesus' betrayal. But Philip was the first to hear and obey those words. From the outset, Jesus actively sought Philip. He found him, he invited him to follow. And he found in Philip an eager and willing disciple. End quote. That is put so wonderful. And amen every bit of that of what MacArthur says. So in finding Philip, Jesus actually called him by saying those two powerful, simple words of invitation. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. That's the call to discipleship. To be a follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Himself went forth. He sought out Philip. He found Philip. Philip was not seeking Jesus. It was Christ seeking Him. Don't you love that? The initiative came from Jesus entirely. So Jesus made the move to find Philip and enlist him in his mission by saying, follow me. That's actually always the case. It is the Lord that seeks us out. No man seeks God. No one is... Even people say, yeah, but they're seeking God. No, not really. It's God that seeks them out. No one seeks God because within us and our depraved hearts before we come to regeneration, it is God that always takes the initiative. He's the seeker. Actually, Jesus' practice of calling His followers can counter the contemporary practice of that day whereby disciples opted to attach themselves to a rabbi of their choice. That was the practice of that day. Usually, the um, disciples would attach themselves to a rabbi. But even though Philip was not the kind of leader among the disciples that Peter turned out to be, Jesus still called him to follow him and included him in the apostolic circle. He was actually the leader of a second group of the disciples. Peter was the leader of the first group, actually the intimate group. Peter, James, and John. You always see them, the inner circle. One factor may have been that here that Philip, like Andrew, and Peter was from the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida, So that Jesus could build on an already existing relationship. This is the wisdom of Christ and Christ knew exactly whom He was to choose here. He chose, actually... Very ordinary men. Fishermen. Blue-collar workers. Verse 44 says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Interested to note here also that while Mark, chapter 1, verse 21 and verse 29, locates Peter's house in Capernaum, John here relates that he was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida. The fact that Peter and Andrew most likely grew up 
in Bethsaida. And then later they relocated to Capernaum in the same way that Jesus was consistently identified with his hometown of Nazareth, though he lived elsewhere later. So now we observed, uh, we observe here from the text that Philip has a seeking heart after the Lord and that it is very evident in how he responded to Jesus. He had a seeking heart and he responds and he's very receptive. Now let's look at the second point. The second is that Philip's first concern is Nathaniel. Nathaniel. We see Philip as a soul winner, very much like Andrew. Notice Andrew, who does he go to after he founds Christ? He goes to the one nearest to him, his own brother, Peter. So we don't know anything here in the text that Philip has brothers. I don't know. We don't know that. But we do know that Philip had a very good friend here. He, he had a very good friend, and his name is Nathaniel. Verse 45 says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, and you can almost end the text in this sentence, hear and feel the excitement. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. He studied God's word. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's interesting. He says he's the son of Joseph. And Joseph, you know, in, from the verses of Scripture, you know, is basically a carpenter. He's a nobody. Philip found Nathaniel. Or another translation would say he went to get Nathaniel. This indicates a, purpose, a very purposeful act of looking for and going to that person. You notice in the text here, there's not a mass of people. It's one-on-one. That, I really do believe that. That, it, that evangelism is most effective one-to-one. One-on-one. It's not necessarily the masses. It's personable. It's person to person. So the pattern is exactly, again, as I mentioned, is the same in verse 41 as we saw Andrew. And when he went first, found his own brother Simon, who's Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. He goes to the one that is nearest to him, to his family. That's what the text actually is speaking to us. We're to go to our family and tell people about the Lord. Go to our brothers. Go to our sisters. Go to our parents if they're living. And tell them about Christ. Now, Philip goes to Nathaniel, And I would say he's considering as a very good friend of his. Maybe his best friend. I don't know. But he goes to his friend. And as far as Philip was concerned, he had found the Messiah rather than being found by him. That's as far as he sees it on his view. But here we see the 
the, the classic tension once again, don't we? What's that classic tension? The sovereign election of God and human choice. How often do you hear this controversy brought up within churches and among God's people? Uh, keep in mind, um, by the way, these two tensions exist in perfect harmony. Now, this is basically what MacArthur says, and I got that from him. I'm paraphrasing it. There's no contradiction, as people would like to think, with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and man's choice. They do not oppose each other. And matter of fact, as MacArthur says, they run parallel together. We can't figure that out, but don't try to, because you won't. But God's in charge, and man is, man is basically has, in a sense, he, within himself, let me say this, as you well know, and he does not have a will to choose because his will, like Luther says, is in bondage to sin. Not until grace ignites it and gives light to it. But there's another book also that Jonathan Edwards wrote, The Freedom of the Will. Jonathan Edwards, who, by the way, to, was it 284 years ago? I think Brother Keith and Brother Ben mentioned to me that he preached, Edwards preached that awesome sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Exactly yesterday, 284 years ago, I believe. One of the most powerful sermons ever given in America. Edwards wrote a whole, uh, it's like a thesis on the freedom of the will. That, in a sense, we do have a, a choice. But Luther says, I think Edwards comes from a, a different angle than Luther, but at the same time, a lot, a lot of times we can kind of get bogged down in those things, but know this, as you well know, these, these two actually are run together parallel, side by side. They form a biblical perspective. We know that God's choice is really the determinative one and is the one that overrides man's will. I like what even R.C. Sproul, which, as you well know, is, was a staunch Calvinist, <laughs> He says, God doesn't bring people to the foot of the cross kicking and screaming. He brings them gently, but He causes a change within them. In other words, what He's saying is, man does not have the power to choose God, really. God has all power, irresistible grace, as is it called, to bring people to Christ. That's why Christ says, in John 15, 16, I'll repeat it again, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you. This is after he picked the disciples, handpicked and prayed for them. And even the first disciples that sought Jesus out, supposedly from the text. But ultimately it's God that took the initiative, right? Well, yet from a human perspective here, from Philip's point of view, as we see, this was the end of his search. You know, all of us come to the kingdom like that, don't we? We first see, we come seeking the Lord, we think. We found Christ, right? I, I, I felt that way when I first came into the kingdom. I, I Praise God, I found the Lord Jesus Christ. But all along, it's He. It wasn't me that was seeking Him. It was Him seeking me. And it wasn't me that found Him, it's He that found me. 
And until you start reading the Scriptures more and more and more, and I started to see when I... When God first revealed this to me, I saw the sovereignty of God on every page of Scripture. It's wonderful, isn't it? But as we first come to know the Lord in a very simple way, and Jesus says, follow me. And even though the preacher I heard preached this, he preached the gospel, but he says, you need to seek the Lord while he may be found. And there's some truth to that. But it's actually God that takes the initiative. Aren't you glad? If He didn't, none of us would be saved. We'd all be lost and doomed to hell. He found us. But here, from Philip's viewpoint, he goes to Nathaniel, his search has ended, he says, He found the Messiah. We found Him. We know by God's grace, He has faithful seekers. How do we know this? How do we know this? The only reason now we know this is the text tells us. God's Word tells us. I think that's sufficient. God's Word's sufficient. If the text tells us that it is sufficient, it's sufficient. Notice what Philip says. We have found Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip not only had a seeking heart, but Philip was also a personal evangelist. He, he had that kind of heart, and that was God's grace. And how, did God, and how did God give him that grace? Through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures. He's telling this great news to Nathaniel, who is his best friend. So his... First concern here is that he desires to tell Nathaniel about Christ, about him. Now we saw earlier that Andrew again sought out Peter and told him about Jesus. Now we see Philip sought out Nathaniel and he tells him about Jesus. Again, Andrew and Peter were brothers, but here we see friends, friends. I think this is very significant. I think we should reach out to our friends to tell them about Jesus. Our friends. Friendship provided the fertile soul for evangelism. That's what MacArthur says in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men. Friendship is a fertile soul. Fertile, fertile dirt. Because when Christ is introduced into a relationship, a friendship that's based on love and trust, and you have things in common, there's already been established that effect and that response is always powerful, isn't it? Much more powerful, much more receptive than we are to tell it to an enemy. Much more. So go tell your friends. Go tell your family. Go tell your friends. And notice this, how the kingdom of God is built. How's it built? Notice that? One by one. One by one. This is how God builds His church. This is how Christ builds His church. It's brother to brother, friend to friend. Notice also third, my third point. Philip's conviction 
as Jesus was the one prophesied in verse 45. Once again, he's excited, he's zealous, he's very passionate, and actually he should be. It's Christ that he's speaking of. We should be passionate. We should be, there's an urgency here in him telling Nathaniel. And Philip is telling his friend Nathaniel. Now, interesting, let me mention just very quickly as Nathaniel was introduced in our text here. He's not mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, but he is. He's only mentioned by another name. Only John the Apostle refers to him as Nathaniel. Only John calls him Nathaniel. It's likely that this was his personal name, Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Bartholomew is linked with Philip all in all three synoptic, synoptic of apostolic lists. You see this if you read Matthew 10.3, Mark 3.18, Luke 6.14. You see the list of the apostles and you see Philip Bartholomew. Philip Bartholomew. So, was known by another name. So, he's, he's basically is known by another name. It could say it's probably a nickname. I, we don't know but exactly, but we do Philip. So, Philip witnesses to his friend Nathaniel, who is Bartholomew. We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That's, this, this is where the foundation is. This is where Philip got his heart, is in the Scriptures. God opened up his eyes of his heart right there reading the Scriptures. Jesus of Nazareth, and notice what he says, son of, he didn't say son of God, did he? He said son of Joseph. Son of Joseph. You know, this tells us that Philip had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah foretold in the Scriptures, both in the law. If you turn quickly with me to Deuteronomy 18, we see this prophesied by Moses in the law. And this is, I am sure, was in the scroll at that time that Philip read. Deuteronomy 18, look at verse 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him shall you hear. According to all you desired of the the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have, have spoken is good. And here's the verse right here. In verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet. Speaking of Christ here, folks. Like you, from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That is actually the law in which... Philip was speaking of. Now the prophets, there are so many prophecies concerning Jesus, so I just chose a few to read to you from Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah chapter 9, if you flip there, you see, you know, the law and the prophets, and there's many more. There's Jeremiah, there's uh, Daniel, there's uh, the Psalms are loaded with it. 
So in Isaiah chapter 9, very familiar portion of verses here, look at 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, and when at first he lightly esteemed in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavenly oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and, the, and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, and men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it, and with judgment and justice, and from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. There you have the prophecy, actually, of the first advent and the second advent. As usually you see from the prophets, they didn't understand the time frame, but God gives them basically the, the prophecy through the Holy Spirit as God was breathing upon them of the coming of Jesus Christ and his, speaking of His second coming. Glorious, isn't it? If you go to Isaiah 11, you see a little bit more here. Isaiah 11, look at 1 through 5. More prophecy giving of Jesus. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his, his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Look at verse 10 and 12. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand at the banner to the, to the people and for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush and from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. <clears throat> so, um, one more verse. He, he will set up a banner for the nations. He will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the disperse of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Again, 
you, you kind of see a mix of the first advent and the sec, second advent. And of course, in your devotional time, you can read Isaiah, the whole chapter, 52, and Isaiah 53. Constant prophecies in detail about the coming of Messiah, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that he would come as God's servant, the Lamb, as we have already seen of God. So here, in our text, Jesus is said to be from Nazareth, from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Though born in Bethlehem, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. So that he could probably be said that he is from Nazareth because that's where he grew up. Yet he was born in Bethlehem. Yet people knew him as the son of Joseph. A nobody. Now, we know that his birth came through the incarnation of the virgin. And we know that he is the son of God who became the son of man. Go with me very quickly to Luke, and we'll see a little detail of this, and we've seen this a lot, and I believe Brother Keith has drawn from this at times in our opening. But Luke chapter 4 is very significant here because it gives us some details a little bit. Look at verse 14. We're going to kind of get the whole picture here, so I'm going to start at verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, This is after his temptation, after he overcame those three incredible temptations in the wilderness uh, from the devil himself. And the scripture says, he, he, he he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth. There's his hometown where he grew up, where he had been brought up. Scripture tells us, doesn't it? This is where he's been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Don't you love this? And And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah... And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. In our chapter and verses is basically chapter 60, I believe. Is that correct? I think so. Let me check just to make sure. I don't want to misquote you. This is very significant because I believe it's chapter 60. No, chapter 61. Yes. Chapter 61, my mistake. So in our chapter and verses, it's chapter 61. But then it was just a reading of the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is He had handed the book given to him and he found the place where he read this. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of the sight to the blind. This is Jesus' ministry. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stopped right there. He did not read further because it basically goes into the day of vengeance of our God. I heard one preacher put it this way. When he comes back on his second coming, he's going to pick up the book and finish that sermon. 
the day of vengeance. But right now it's the day of grace. Jesus brings grace and truth. And then he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. You could just sense this. He sat down. Didn't say a word. He just read those simple verses from Isaiah 61. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that got their attention. Verse 22, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And notice what they said. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, and now the wisdom, the perfect wisdom of Jesus is engaged, folks. He engages his wisdom. And this is what he says. You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Now he's got a point to make. Listen to what he says. Whatever we have done here in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was great famine throughout all the land. And Brother Keith spoke about that this morning. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zareph in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers, listen to what he says, many lepers were in Israel in that time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. He stops right there. Look at verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things were filled with wrath, they got the point. They rose up and thrust out thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill of which the city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff to kill him. They were enraged. But then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. In other words, he basically escaped by the sovereign plan of God for this was not his moment to die. Actually, his purpose of dying and God kept him step by step until he went to Golgotha, Calvary's cross, to die as the Lamb of God. But here, you notice how they said, the first thing they asked is not this Joseph's son. In Nazareth. In Nazareth. Known as Joseph's son. But we know that Jesus is greater than Joseph's son because he technically by seed, is not Joseph's son. Right? We know where he comes. He created all things. They don't realize who and how great a one that's in their midst. Jesus has been conceived in Mary's womb, the virgin, through the Holy Spirit, and he existed with God the Father from all eternity. He created the world. Now he's here in flesh. He's pitched his tent. And they say he's Joseph's son. He's a nobody. Yet truly, this was the Son of God. Now it's interesting that Philip tells Nathaniel in this in assignment, but he, he basically, we, we don't know exactly what all that was said 
to Philip in between because when Jesus calls him to follow me, I'm sure there was conversation that was going on. Just like Jesus came alongside the road of the two, the two on the road of Emmaus, the two disciples, right? Cleophas, I think, was one of the other ones not named. But Jesus reveals himself and he, he reveals himself through the scriptures. And I really believe that this is what Jesus did during that time as he was with Philip. That Jesus opened up the scriptures. This is how Philip came to know Christ. About the Messiah that was foretold in the law and the prophets. Notice with me in verse 46, Nathanael's response. This is interesting. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Look at that question. What, what do you get out of that? We get a skeptic. He, he's very skeptical. He's cynical. He, something very ironic here though. <laughs> he's prejudiced. Nathaniel himself came from a small village himself in Canaan of Galilee. He, here he is saying, can anything come out of Nazareth? And Cana was very small and insignificant too. <laughs> Isn't that so ironic? <laughs> Takes one to know one, they say, right? <laughs> well, you, you, you can read in John 21, 2 and John 2, 1 through 11 about here, about Cana. But here the disciple is... Uh, he. Nathaniel was very prejudiced against the insignificant Galilean town. Isn't he? We, we can name this here Philip the Evangelist and Nathaniel the Skeptic. He's very skeptical. But his friend, but he, he's a friend, Nathaniel. Now, now let me in, in closing here as we point go toward our closing and application. Um just a few more things to say here. Why the skepticism? Why the skepticism? First, I like to say there was Nazareth was very insignificant and small. He was skeptic because of that, and like I said, he's one to speak, right? Because Canaan was insignificant as well. Nazareth was a small town of Basically, no more than 2,000 people at that time, and located about three and a half miles southeast of the regional capital of Zerophis. That's the first reason. The second reason was not only was Nazareth insignificant, but also people did not envision the Messiah as coming from Galilee. A third reason would be some also think that there was. Rivalry between the small cities, which could be very well so. Uh, uh, Jewish historians basically picked that up. And commentator Morris, between the small cities of Nazareth, said that and, and Canaan. So they could be, since they were two small towns, they were kind of rival, rivals. And finally, Nathaniel unlike some of Jesus' other followers, probably had not benefited from John the Baptist's testimony. I didn't think about that, but that's so true. One commentator says. Which would make that a huge difference, wouldn't it? 
Philip, you know, he, uh, no, I'm sorry, Nathaniel did not benefit from that like some of the others. Well, Nathaniel's feature, uh, it's, it's interesting, is, is in this gospel, and he's a type of the skeptical. But just one thing I want you to notice. Even though we disagree with the skeptic, we have to, we have to put our hats off, so to speak, to the skeptic. Because they're honest. There's honesty here. Don't you love that about skeptics? You can always find something good. Most people, most people that are skeptical are very honest. And Nathaniel is an honest man. Actually, Jesus, later on, we will see this Lord willing next Lord's Day. But if you look within the text, he has no guile. In other words, no deceit. That doesn't mean he's perfect. By no means. Only Jesus is perfect. But basically what Jesus is saying, He's honest. There's some integrity here. He has a heart that He wants to see things for Himself somewhat like Thomas. You see, Thomas, a lot, you know, I've heard preachers preach that text from Thomas and after Jesus' resurrection and after eight days and, and... First, Jesus appears to his disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. You know the story. He missed out on that, didn't he? And what happens? Well, Thomas comes back and they tell him, the disciples said, the Lord appeared right here in the room. But Thomas said, I would not believe until I see the Lord for myself. He was skeptical. I, You know... A lot, a lot of preachers throw Thomas underneath the bus there, but we have to put our hats off to Thomas, kind of like Nathaniel. Even though the skeptic, they want to see for themselves. Praise God. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, don't you? A Amen. A Berean. They, they, they want to search the Scriptures. They want to see Christ for themselves. They want to put... He said that and he said... Unless I see him for myself, my own eyes, and lay my hands right in his nail scar. And Jesus, you think he wasn't there at the time, but Jesus heard everything he said. And when Jesus appeared again, Jesus says, Thomas, behold me. Look. Now put your hands in my nail scar and in my wounded side. And what was his answer? My Lord and my God. And he fell and he worshipped. Hallelujah. Praise God. We have, to give, we have to give some kind of credit here to this skeptic, Nathaniel. Uh, unlike some of Jesus' older followers, probably, again, he, he didn't benefit from John the Baptist's testimony, but here, in any case, Nathaniel features, he wants to see for himself. He's a man with no deceit. He's blunt, he's honest, he's transparent. Has, he has a willingness to examine for himself the claims that's being made about Jesus as the Messiah. He wants to see Christ for himself. And just not... Just... Taking it from his good friend, Philip. Which Philip was a really good evangelist. And we're going to see how he responds to Nathaniel, but... Nathaniel here proves to have an honest, seeking heart without deceit. And he's applied, 
As Jesus applied this to him in verse 47, Lord willing, we'll look at this next Lord's Day. Nathaniel basically wanted to see for himself who Jesus is. Skeptic, yes. Honest, yes. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How does Philip reply? This is wisdom, folks. They always, you know, when, I, when, when I've been told this, and you know this as well, you never argue with a skeptic. You give the reason for the hope that's within you. You don't argue. Have you, do you notice here in, in the way he answers? He does not argue with his friend. He just says, come and see. Come and see for yourself. <laughs> don't you love that? Though Philip may be... <laughs> uh, able to answer Nathaniel's skeptical question, but he's more wise and extensive in the needed correction and instruction which is coming to Jesus from Jesus in verse 50 and 51. We'll see that. But what is more, here we learn something from Philip the evangelist that, that proceeds to answer Nathaniel's question even more extensively he gives the invitation, and I really believe he gets it from the Master. Because the Lord said this earlier, doesn't he? He says, come and see. To the first, John and Andrew. And he's being like the Lord. He gives the invitation. Kind of like Stephen. When Stephen was... Being stoned to death, what does, he, what does he pray to those that were stoning them to death? He says, Father, forgive them. Don't lay this sin to their charge. And we're talking about mean, hard-hearted, ugly, nasty, religious Pharisees. And he prays, Father, do not lay this sin to their charge. Here, I really do believe that Philip is imitating his master, the master himself. Come and see. He gives him an invitation. Isn't this what we should be doing to our friends? You don't argue. If they're not believers in Christ, if they're skeptical, don't push it. Don't argue. Just give a gracious invitation. You come and see. Come and see. Extended grace. Extended truth and love. And a reminder of the gospel. Then as well as now, that this underscores the great importance of eyewitness accounts, a testimony of the first-hand knowledge of the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what really matters, folks. Come and see. Come and see. Implies an offer to go and find out together. Philip the soul winner, like Andrew. Andrew tells his brother closest to him. Philip tells his best friend closest to him. Telling others about Jesus. Isn't this what this is why we exist? Our first reason for existing, as we saw last Lord's Day in the Sunday school class, Burke Parsons, about worship. We God created us to worship Him. Tozer put it this way: God redeemed rebels to make us worshipers. Amen. That is wonderful. He takes the rebel and makes us worshipers. That's the purpose of our life and our existence. But the reason why God keeps us here on this earth, next to that, 
is the reason to evangelize and tell people about Jesus. Folks, the older I get, the more I see. I worship God. Those two things are paramount. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's vertical, right? Horizontal. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus says you could take that and hang all the law and the prophets and you have fulfilled everything that's pleasing to God if you do those things. That's the great, com- the great commandment. And the great commission is fulfilled by the great commandment. Invite people. Come and see. Come and see. Let me close just with a few verses because my time's up. Isaiah 55. Just two. I was going to go to Matthew 11, but you know that one very well. The words of our Lord and Savior Himself says, Come unto Me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He gives the invitation, doesn't He? To those that are heavy and burdened, downtrodden from the law of God. Here, Isaiah the prophet gives the invitation to abundant life. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you, will, and, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. And do not spend money for what is not bread. And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Listen to what God says. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight in itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Here in your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and the commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and, a na- and nations who do, not, who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord. While he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and, his, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. There's repentance. In such goodness God invites, but there must be repentance. And then he says, let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Isn't that beautiful? That's a promise of God. Beautiful promise. One more. One more. Turn with me to Revelation 22. The closing words in Revelation is an invitation to all. Before the canon of Scripture was actually closed out. No more Revelation after this, right? This is the Revelation. These 66 books was stamped Right here, enclosure locked. No man, if anybody adds to it or takes away from it, God he says right here, for I testify to everyone in verse 18, here's the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. But back up with me. You know, the Bible is very clear. If a person wants to desire to live filthy and wicked 
basically says, go ahead. But there is an invitation, though. Pastor, what do you get that? Right here. Notice it right here. Verse 9, Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. Basically, the angel was saying, Don't worship me, for I am your fellow servant and your brethren, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not steal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. Only God can change the heart, right? He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. The question is, what do we desire? Where is our heart? Jesus says, and behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. That is That scripture right there just puts fire down in me, but it puts conviction in me because I'm thinking He's going to give everyone according to His work. We're not going to be judged because of our sin in the sense because we're covered because of Jesus Christ and His blood and His righteousness. But we will be judged according to our works. Tozer put it this, he says, you're basically saved, but you're on probation. <laughs> That's the truth. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And listen what He says. Blessed are those who do His commandments. There's a blessing to those who obey. Blessed are those who do His commandments and they, that they may have right to the tree of life. How does that happen? To as many as received Him, to them, to them He gave the right to become children of God. He gives the authority, the right the right to the tree of life. The tree of life comes Calvary's, cows, comes from Calvary's cross. That's the tree of life. And may enter through the gates into the city. That's the only way to enter in. No other way, right? No other way but Jesus. No other way. People really fuss about that, don't they? Why, why, is, it, why is it there a lot of ways? But then, Amen. Why, why is there one way? <laughs> but there is one way. And Jesus is the way. The truth. And the life. Verse 15, but outside are dogs. Listen to this. Outside of this city. Dogs. The nature. The nature of a dog is filthy. Sorcerers. The, the, the list is here, listen, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. How many people in this world loves and practices lying? That's why Jesus said the gate is wide, the wide and broad. Many there will go in that way. There's only two ways, two ways actually. Ravenhill put it this way, there's a a thousands, millions of roads to hell, but not one road out. But there's only one road that leads to heaven, and that's the way of the cross. The way of the cross leads home. I, Jesus, He says in verse 16, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. 
I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. That's our Lord Himself. And then it says in verse 17, this gracious, gracious invitation. You can almost sense God's heart right here, folks. And He says, and the Spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears, hears. We must hear him, right? Say, come. The bride, the Spirit and the bride says, come, the invitation. Notice what it says, the Holy Spirit and the church. He who hears, come, and let him who first, come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are such gracious words to us today. We pray, Lord, and we look forward to the great day in which Your Son will come back in great glory with all the holy angels. Hallelujah. That great day, that glorious day when Christ Jesus will come. And Lord, we long to look upon His face, our King, our Lord. Lord, we get so tired at times living in this sin-cursed world. But Lord, You have held us up and preserved us for Yourself and sanctified us and keep sanctifying us in Your grace to keep us from this world. But at the same time, Lord, we are the messenger to this world. Lord, we hasten the day. Oh Lord, when kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of the world, of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and your Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, and we will reign with him. Lord, please burn this within our hearts that we may go forth. Be a burning and a shining light, as John the Baptist was. That we will be removed, and Jesus be glorified and be preeminent. Our cries with the closing words of the revelation, Lord, with the apostle. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Defeat the enemies, Lord, that plot against you. Lord Jesus, judge this world in righteousness and come. Bring us, bring us safety, safely into your presence. In the meantime, may we stretch forth our hands in grace and truth and not compromise, but be gracious in pointing people to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, we long to see this day come as Jesus t- said, Your kingdom come, that will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.